Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines for over 25 years. Online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, Lori Powers discusses the Queen and her court, great women pulp editors of the Pulp magazines. Lori is author of Queen of the Pulps, The Reign of Daisy Bacon and Love Story magazine. This event was recorded on Friday, August 20, 2021, at Pulp Fest 2021 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Back there? Okay, good. Um, I want to thank the committee for asking me to do this presentation. And um, it's, it's actually, I'm really grateful for be, to be able to do this because when I first started researching this, I didn't know, you know, I had focused on Daisy for about seven years. And I really, you know, I got tunnel vision, and I just focused on her, you know, to get her story down. And I didn't really know a lot about other women editors in the Pulse. So this is a great opportunity for me to do that. Um, A couple things I have to ask your forgiveness. One is that um, I was hoping I'd be able to just talk to you tonight, but, you know, without looking at my notes, well, that's not going to happen because... I'm over 60 now, and I can't even remember my phone number. So I'm going to be reading a lot from my notes. And then also, some of these women, um, I might butcher the pronunciation of their names. So there's been, I've been asking a few people around, how do you pronounce this name or how do you pronounce that name? There's been about five or six different opinions. So, um, you know. We can talk about that afterwards. So there will be a question and answer uh, period afterwards. So anyway, let's get started. Okay, so this is Daisy Bacon, who was the editor of Love Story magazine from 1928 to 1947. And because of the extraordinary circulation that Love Story had, and the fact that it basically launched the whole romance pulp industry, she was given the nickname Queen of the Pulps. By the way, um, a lot of the artwork in that picture of the artwork, that piece up on the right-hand corner of the woman with the hat that's kind of covering her eyes, that's for sale right now. It's What's the name of the website? Vintage Pulse, so if you're interested. Anyway, so because she was, um, because Love Story was so successful, Daisy was featured in a lot of magazine articles and a lot of newspaper stories, so she got a lot of publicity through the 30s and 40s. But there were a lot more women that were working as editors in the Pulse that never got any kind of publicity at all. And so for a lot of them, their histories have been lost. So when I started to do the research for this presentation, I started to make up a list of what I could find. And I looked on Galactic Central, and I looked on other websites and books that I had and um, other sources. So I started to make up a list. And this was the beginning of my list. And, but as I went on, I kept finding more and more of them. Now, uh, when I, I did a post for the Pulp Fest website about two months ago or so, and at that point I said that I had found about 30 names. 
Well, I kept looking, and now there's over 50. Now, a couple caveats about this list. One is that there's a good possibility that some of these are pseudonyms because the editors use pseudonyms also once in a while. Um, I tried to refrain from using or putting on the list any names that had initials unless I was fairly certain that it was a woman. And um, the last thing is that there's probably more than likely a lot more because as we know, a lot of the table of contents back then, the women had to put their first name as an initial because they didn't want the readers to know that they were women. So there could be a lot more of these. So let's see. Now it also does not include any assistant editors and there were plenty of women assistant editors who did just as much work as the editors and sometimes even more. And so like Daisy's sister Esther was an assistant editor and she did a heck of a lot of work. So I just didn't even go down that road at this point. So for tonight, I'm going to be talking about five women, and I picked them, um, a couple of them, there was a lot of interest in me talking about them. I picked a couple more because I was interested in them, and I picked one because I felt that there was no interest in her, and I wanted to kind of cover her a little bit just to give her a little bit of, of uh, coverage. So if I lose my voice, Hang, hang in there with me. Sometimes I lose my voice and I have to talk for long periods. Another thing about the five women I'm going to be talking about, four out of five of them started their career editing Romance Pulse. So the first one I'm going to talk about is Fanny Ellsworth. Also, her real name is Fanny Ellsworth Davis. She edited, ran her most famous magazines that she edited were Ranch Romances and Black Mask. Also, when she was working for Clayton Magazines, she edited Big Story Magazine, Rangeland Stories, and Western Love Stories. Then when she went to Standard, she edited Thrilling Ranch Stories, Western Rodeo Romances, and Romantic West Annual. And those are all um, during specific years, and I can give you the years later on if you want. Later, she was also the managing editor and executive editor for the thrilling group of science fiction magazines. So she was one of the few women that moved from the editorial chair to the executive chair as a woman during that period. So Fanny was born in 1904 in New York City. Her father was a banker. Um, there are reports um, that she went to Barnard College and graduated in 1926. She began as a proofreader at Clayton Magazines. Now, some records show that she was the very first editor of Ranch Romances. But as far as I can tell, that is not true. She, um, there was another woman, I believe it was a woman, her name was Bina, B-I-N-A, Flynn, who Harold Hersey mentions in his book as being the first editor of Ranch Romances, and she was there from 1924 until, I mean, Fanny didn't really even get credit as editor until like 1930. So um, that's when she first has some kind of concrete evidence of that. These two covers are from 1930 period, 
And by this time, ranch romances had a circulation of at least 200,000. In 1934, Fanny married John Davis, another editor, but he was an editor of the Shell Progress magazine for the Shell Oil Company. So that's where her official name is Fanny Ellsworth Davis. Then in, um, in 1933, Ranch Romances was taken over by Warner Publications. Then in 1936, Joseph Shaw quit as editor of Black Mask, and Fanny was assigned as the new editor. And that position she held until April 1940. She was, as we know, given large shoes to fill. After she took over, over the next four years, stories in the magazine started to shift from the hard-boiled type that we all know to what a lot of people have called a more emotional, psychological mystery style. And Keith Deutsch wrote about Fanny on his Black Mask website, and he says on there, and this is where I'm going to read, by all contemporary accounts, Fanny Ellsworth was one of the great fiction editors of all time. Frank Gruber describes her as one of the brightest, most urbane people he met in New York. Gruber and Steve Fisher both assert that when Fanny Ellsworth took over control of Black Mask, she came with a well-mapped vision for a change in the kind of crime fiction the famous magazine would feature. She immediately started to buy stories from Gruber, who wrote, who had been writing lead stories for Ranch Romances, and also Steve Fisher, who she recognized had a natural talent for expressing strong and complex emotions. And then at that point, she also started to increase the number of stories that she purchased from Cornell Woolrich. So he went so far as to call this shift in the style, he called it the Ellsworth shift. Now, I would like to talk to you guys about this afterwards. I'm not really quite sure about that. So on the left is the January 1937 issue. This includes Woolrich's first story for Black, for Black Mask, shooting going on. And then on the right is the August 1937 issue, which includes Steve Fisher's novel, Murder at Eight. And she edited Black Mask until 1940, and that's when Ken White was brought in. Now, this whole time that she's doing that, she's also still the editor of Ranch Romances. So um, True West had a little feature of her a few years ago, and they said, it, they said it very well. They said that Fanny was the glue that held the magazine together. So she was the editor of Ranch Romances until 1953. Now, she wrote this article that appeared in the Ogden Standard Examiner in 1941. And she talks in there about how to write Western stories for publishers. And she says in there that it's the atmosphere more than gunplay or fistfights that make a story a Western. And also, romantic Western stories should move along briskly, but you don't have to kill a man on every page, or even on every other. So in 1948, she published Elmer Kelton's first story, There's Always Another Chance, and it showed up in this issue. Over the years, um, he would write over 30 stories for ranch romances. Um, according to the accounts that Elmer has given 
uh, Fanny was a little more generous with bending the rules as to the standards of what should be in a usual Western. She liked humor, but she also knew what she wanted, and she wanted um, something with some kind of emotional bend to it rather than just a shoot 'em up style. This article appeared in the Salt Lake Tribune in 1949, and it's a feature on Fanny when she stopped into town for a literary event. Now, the photo is not of her and her husband, although it's kind of, the headline kind of makes it appear that it is, but it's not. It's actually Fanny and Frank Robertson, who was an author for Ranch Romances for many, many years. Frank invited Fanny to Salt Lake to be um, a guest of honor at a literary event that he was hosting. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Now, after Fanny left uh, Ranch Romances, she became interested in Turkish studies, of all things. So she published at least three books on Turkish history and culture after she left, And then this book was published posthumously in 1986, two years after she had died. So, moving on to this woman, Dorothy, and this is one of the last names that I've gotten about six different opinions on how to pronounce. McElrath? 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 Dorothy was the only editor that I could find of these five that never touched a romance pulp. She edited short stories and also weird tales. She was born in Hamilton, Ontario in in 1891. She went to McGill University in Montreal and graduated in English in 1914. She was mentored by her aunt, who worked in the publishing field and was the author of romantic and and historical novels. Dorothy began to work in magazines like The Independent and was eventually a script reader at Doubleday. The 1920 census shows her as an assistant magazine editor at Doubleday. She also wrote poetry. This issue of Muncie's in June 1926 includes her poem, The Purple Cliffs of Labrador. She also, during the 1920s, did a lot of traveling, especially to Scotland. Uh, When you think about what her last name was, she probably had a lot of great, uh, a lot of family interest in Scotland. Now, a great deal has been written about her career at Weird Tales, but I wanted to first acknowledge her work as, as editor of short stories, which she took over in 1937. Her first name was diminished to a D on the table of contents. During her time as editor of short stories, she continued the magazine's successful tradition of Western and adventure stories, and she worked with a lot of very well-known authors. The man on the right, who is Frank Gruber, he writes in the pulp jungle. And by the way, Frank Gruber writes in the pulp jungle of more women editors than I read in any other book. He really gave them a lot of credit in his book. He writes in the pulp jungle of a time when he was already a successful writer, but he decided that he wanted to raise his rate. And so a lot of the publishers called his bluff and told him where to go. 
So all of a sudden he needed to find a new market, so he called on Dorothy, who he said was not too encouraging because she already had a very strong inventory of, of strong writers, but she took his story and accepted it, and she took the rate that he wanted, which was two cents a word, and that, that was pretty good for 19, late 1930s. Uh, they eventually built a very close relationship, and I read somewhere that after a while that he would give short stories first pass on all of his stories after that. Then in 1940, after Weird Tales was bought by Short Stories, Inc., and Farnsworth Wright was let go, Dorothy was brought in as editor of Weird Tales. She edited Weird Tales from 1940 to 1954. She was first credited in this issue, May 1940, and that, that was this cover. Now, a lot of you know that she had an uphill battle when she took over Weird Tales. Even before she became editor, the new owner wanted to turn Weird Tales into another short stories pulp. He wanted to cut the rates to both the artists and the authors. And when Farnsworth Wright left the magazine, some of its authors discussed of having a boycott and refusing to send her any new material. Um, e. Uh, e. Hoffman Price didn't really care for that, and he wrote about this uh, about her about this boycott in no uncertain terms. And I'll quote you what he said. He said the new Dor the new editor Dorothy McAlrath was and to this day is damned by the emotional ignoramus as an incompetent editor. None of these loyal nitwits realized that the publisher scrapped Bright's long-established editorial policies and told Dorothy what to do and how to do it. As an employee, she had to obey orders or bail out. This photo on the left shows Dorothy as she was working um, as she, she was working right next to the short stories totem pole, and I think that knowing that she was working on short stories probably gave her a little bit of comfort during these tumultuous years working on Weird Tales. And I have something I want to read. In the Pulpster, Tony Davis has a great piece on her in the current issue of the Pulpster, and I'm going to quote a few places from it. Science fiction magazine historian Mike Ashley notes that under her, Weird Tales became more consistent in quality, with some fiction reaching Farnsworth Rice high points while omitting the lows. Female authors such as Margaret St. Clair, Mary Elizabeth Councilman, Suzanne Pickett, Alice Mary Schneering, I hope I pronounced that right, and Alison B. Harding were more present in Weird Tales. During the next 14 years, many famous authors were seen in the table of contents of Weird Tales for the first time, including Fritz Lieber, Margaret St. Clair, and Joseph Payne Brennan. This issue, which is November 1942, includes work by Robert Block, Fritz Lieber, and Ray Bradbury. Weird Tales was discontinued in 1954, and Dorothy stepped down from both magazines at that point, and she retired to Ontario. She had a very full life in retirement, and Tony writes about that in his piece, where he says at the end he, he had um, corresponded with her nephew, because Dorothy never married, 
and her nephew writes, from 1965 until her death in 1976, she filled the role of slightly eccentric senior citizen in a quiet bucolic community, tending a garden full of lupins, admiring the cows grazing in the field across the road, playing Scrabble, and driving the country roads in quest of yet one more antique shop or bargain barn. So that sounds like a pretty good retirement if you ask me. Um, and if you want to read more about her, Tony's article in the current issue of the Pulpster is really excellent. Okay. The next one I'm going to talk about is Mary Nadinger. And she was actually kind of a contemporary of Dorothy's. In many respects, their careers were almost interlinked by the years in which they were editors. Some of their magazines shared the same authors and artists, and they both showed a strong commitment to their readers and their opinions. These are all the, I mean, she's known mainly for famous fantastic mysteries, but these are all the um, magazines that she was editor of, Romantic Love Secrets, Famous Fantastic Mysteries, Fantastic Novels, Love Novels, A Merit's, and A Merit's Fantasy Magazine. She was born Mary Catherine Jacobson. She was born in Brooklyn. She attended the Columbia School of Journalism. While she was at Columbia, she met and married a news editor, Louis Nadinger. Louis would become um, a news editor, a very respected one, and eventually he worked for the New York Times and the Daily Mirror. Mary, um, as was the case with a lot of female journalists back then, she started as a society reporter for the Brooklyn Eagle. And then she also did work for the E.F. Dutton Company before joining the Frank Muncie Company. She was the first editor of this magazine, Romantic Love Secrets, when it was launched in 1933. She held that position until June 1934. Then after that, there isn't a lot of news about her until Muncie launched the famous Fantastic Mysteries in 1939, and she became its first and only editor. Because it, uh, it printed reprints that were already considered very popular, the magazine was very popular from the start. But she, you know, she was also very receptive to readers' input, and she virtually made the magazine a reader's magazine. So that also uh, made it quite popular as well. And I have one small thing I want to read. This is, this is a great book if anybody wants to pick up information about her or Dorothy. It's called Sisters of Tomorrow. And I found it to be really interesting. Um, these are a few things that she wrote in the editor's page of Famous Fantastic Mysteries. And this is from March of 1940. You will find that each succeeding issue of Famous Fantastic Mysteries conforms further with the reader's requests. Many readers have suggested that an illustrated cover would improve the appearance of the magazine. Yeah, I would say so. We hope you like the cover Virgil Finley has done for you this month. And that was this cover on the right here. And then in March of 1940, that issue, they also put in the list of stories in order of popularity for the first five issues. 
which I think was pretty unusual. I mean, they actually listed them out according to their populators so people could know which ones were the most popular. So like, for instance, the very first issue, the most popular story was the girl with the, in the golden atom, the moon pool, Carpen the Jew, the Wimpus, the Witchmakers, Blind Man's Bluff, and Space Station Number One. So she was always very cognizant of what the readers wanted. In 1940, she was given a spin-off, which is fantastic novels, which only lasted five issues at that point and then was decommissioned. But then when it, um, under popular publications, it was reissued in 1948, and that lasted until 1951. Um, in 1943, Famous Fantastic Mysteries was sold to popular publications. Nadinger was kept on and was allowed to use more original material at that point although reprints would still appear in the magazine until the end. This issue, which is December 1943, includes the um, short story King of the Gray Spaces by Ray Bradbury, and that was his first appearance in this magazine. Then, during this whole time, she was also editing Love Novels magazine from at least 1945 until 1954. And the cover for this issue was painted, this probably looks kind of familiar to some of you, it was painted by one of our guests of honor, Gloria Stoll. Um, then in 1949, she took on A Merit's Fantasy Magazine, which is the cover here on the left. And then in 1953, Famous Fantastic Mysteries stopped its, it stopped its run. On the right is the last issue, and uh, which I think is a pretty interesting combination of stories on the front, on the cover. A story by Ayn Rand and also Franz Kafka. Now, um, Mary's editorship of, of Famous Fantastic Mysteries was, she edited from the very first issue to the very last. And that was pretty rare, given that the magazine had three different owners over 14 years. Uh, Mary died in 1976 in the Bronx. She was 78, and then her husband, Louis, died the next year. So a lot of women chose to remain in the romance pulp arena for most of their careers. These are some of them. And um, on the top left... Ruth Dreyer, Amita Fairgrave, Petty Graves, Jane Liddell, Irma Ginsburg, and then the bottom is, oh, we're doing clockwise. And then there's Marie A. Park, Louise Hauser, Harry Bradfield, and Ollie Redpath. Now, there are many more that just edited in the Romance Pulse, but these are the only ones I could find pictures for. And thanks to uh, John Locke, he sent me a lot of the articles from Writer's Journal, their Get to Know the Editor columns, a lot of them were covered in those columns, their short biographies. And for a lot of these women, that's the only information that was ever published about them as a public person. Tonight I'm going to talk about one in particular, and that's uh, 
Marie Antoinette Park. And not very much info is known about her right now. So most of my information was taken from that Writer's Journal article. She was born in 1908 in New Orleans. Her father was Eugene Hale Park. Her mother was Mary Josephine O'Connell. The article says that she was married before she graduated from Ursuline College. Now, there's an Ursuline Academy in New Orleans, but from what I can tell, it was only a school for girls from kindergarten through grade 12. But it is possible that she got married before she left secondary school. Um, according to the article, Mary had been writing stories since 1939 and had been using six pseudonyms during that time. Her and her husband moved to New York in 1942 when she was 34. Somewhere between 1942 and 1945, her and her husband got divorced, and she started work at Columbia around the same time. Um, it was probably her experience as a writer that helped her eventually get into some kind of editorial position, and then she moved up. These are the three romance pulps that she edited. As you can tell from the time frame, some of those had a very long range of time. Some of them, like the Ideal Love, she edited for 15 years, 14 years. So she was there quite a while. She also wrote at least one story for that magazine, Ideal Love, in 1942, and one for Gay Love in 1943. But those are the only articles, or only stories, that are under her name in Galactic Central. Now, she wrote under six pseudonyms for several years. There's a lot of them out there that need to be um, listed. They're, they're just not, a, not on there yet. The Writer's Journal piece on her gave her, you know, the art, some of the pieces that I, that I read about the romance editor, some of them had a slightly patronizing tone. This one wrote about her, and it says, Her given name is Marie Antoinette, because she likes to eat cake. She also likes soupy music and soapy opera, perfume, cats, and memoirs of French notables. In her Waverly Place apartment in Greenwich Village, Miss Park simply wallows in oodles and oodles of books of French memoirs and records of the latest in musical soup and soap. However, at present, she has no cats, although she did have nine at one time, but she had to get rid of the 81 lives to make room for more French memoirs. So, didn't need to take any sugar after reading that one. Then, with an interesting kind of like twist here, in 1949, she also edited these two publications. Thank you, Michelle which were actually romance comics. Darling Romance ran for 11 issues, and Darling Love ran for seven. Michelle Nolan writes about these in her book, Love on the Racks. She says that they were not intended to be comics for youngsters or teenagers. As she says, they were attempts to horn in on the lucrative market for sensational digest-sized paperbacks with sleazy covers. But what was interesting is that the publisher of these was Close Up, which was an imprint of Archie Comics. 
Then, in 1951, Marie also was given real Western romances, which went back, forth, back and forth between Western romances to real Western romances and back again. And she edited those until 1958. So for a period in 1951, Marie was editing three romance pulps, one romance Western, and two romance comics for six publications in all. So I imagine that she probably had a pretty strong support staff. After the end of the romance pulps, unfortunately after that, the trail kind of goes cold for Marie. I wish I could have found out more about her. Um, the last editor I'm going to talk about tonight is Babette Rosemond, who edited Doc Savage and The Shadow for four years in the 1940s. Now, the number of magazines that she edited and the years in which she did it are smaller compared to other, the other editors I've talked about, but she was very accomplished in other areas, and I want to talk about those tonight. And she was the one that I picked myself that I wanted to, to research. She was born in 1917. The Writer's Journal, Meet the Editor article, says that she was a native New Yorker. It also says that she never went to college. She was employed by a literary agency selling manuscripts. She edited a love pulp at some point, but it didn't mention which one. And she started at Street and Smith in the promotion department. In 1943, she had two stories published in Unknown Worlds. One was in 1942. It was called Are You Run Down, Tired? And that was written, co-written by her and Leonard M. Lake. And then another story, Run, One Man's Harp, in 1943. In 1944, she married Henry Stone, who um, actually also was the uncle of Oliver Stone, the director. Now, at some point, she began closely working with William de Grucci for a time before taking over the editorship of Doc Shadow and, the Sha and, and Doc Savage and the Shadow. The story goes that she saw, at least in the, in the Writer's Journal article, it says that she just saw that there was an opening for editor on the two magazines and she applied. But that doesn't really make a lot of sense. So... Um, it, it does sound, though, that she worked under de Grucci for quite a while as, as maybe perhaps an assistant before she moved up. And during the period that she edited the magazines, both magazines were shifting to more of a mystery uh, magazine um, style. Now, Babette also mentored, mentored a writer named John D. McDonald on a blog dedicated to McDonald which is called The Trap of Solid Gold. It says, when writing about the early fiction of John D. MacDonald, that period when he was just starting out and learning his craft, enough words cannot be said about the support and guiding influence of pulp editor Babette Rosemond. In one rejection letter, she wrote to him, quote, I too am an admirer of atmosphere, but too much atmosphere and too unconvincing a plot make your story a weak yarn. However, I am extremely fond of the way you write, so dry your tears and send me something else very soon. So I just love that, telling John McDonald to dry his tears. So this issue of Doc Savage contains his first story, 
a handful of deaths. And then McDonald himself wrote about his relationship with her later, saying that when he finally met her, he described her as a slight, dark, spry gal in her 20s, very wry, and with a pyrotechnic, and she was a pyrotechnic conversationalist. Now, during this time, she actually was very busy writing her own stuff. During the time that she was editing Doc Savage in the Shadow, she wrote a novel about the Pulp Fiction industry, and it's the one up on that top left. It's called The Dewey Dewey Eyes. Uh, I actually have read it, and it's, it's fairly interesting. There's a lot of references in there to a company, the company that she was working on was trying to launch a large slick magazine and it sounded quite a bit like when they tried, when they launched Mademoiselle. So she took some of it from her experiences at Street and Smith. She left Street and Smith in 1948 to go on maternity leave. Then she returned after her baby was born, but then she abruptly quit soon after returning um, she wanted to focus on her family, which is probably what she also what she told everybody. But she also wanted to write. Eventually, she returned to magazine um, editing, and she ended up as the fiction editor of Seventeen magazine until in in 1957, and she stayed there until 1975. She also wrote two biographies: one of Robert Benchley, and remember the other one. I think it's over there on the left. Robert Benchley, another one, I'm sorry. And then she also wrote six other novels between 1948 and 1978. And so these are just a few of her books. Then in 1971, Babette was diagnosed with breast cancer. At that time, it was frowned upon for women to take charge of their medical treatment. They were just basically told to follow their doctor's advice and don't worry their little pretty little heads. So she wrote a, a memoir about it later, and the memoir is there on the left-hand side. She wrote it under a pseudonym. She wrote in her memoir that she had some friends who had gone in for biopsies and ended up waking up after surgery and discovering that they had undergone radical mastectomies when they were supposed to, just supposed to have biopsies. So she was very, very leery about having to undergo even a biopsy at that point. So she read, at that point, about that time, she read an article in McCall's magazine about a doctor in the Midwest who had pioneered a new approach called a lumpectomy. When Babette went back to her doctors to talk about this new approach, they told her if if she did that, she would be dead in three weeks. Well, if you can picture Babette the way that I picture her, I'm pretty sure she had other ideas. So she refused, and she um, she refused to continue on with her own doctor, and she went with this physician in the Midwest that had written the article, and she had a, success, a successful lumpectomy. Afterwards, she wrote... Um, in her memoir of meeting another editor at that, you know, after she had recovered from her biopsy and her lumpectomy, she went back to her editor that was working with her on some of her books 
And I want to read just a little bit of what happened. It's pretty funny. This may explain one conversation that must have puzzled Mrs. Clark, an editor at a publishing house where I was to appear soon to discuss a book contract. She had dropped in with some pretty flowers in a grave manner. Are you all right? She asked, as one might have asked of St. Joan through the heat of the gathering flames. I'm fine, I said. Will you, do you think you'll be able to write again? I wanted to tell her that instead of doing a radical frontal lobotomy, they had taken out only a small section of the brain, and I could still frisk with a ball of yarn and do simple sums. She really must have been a dynamo. So after this, after her successful operation, she became actually a very famous activist for this type of new treatment. She wrote in McCall's about her experiences, and McCall says that that was, at that point, the highest circulation they'd ever had for any article in their magazine. And she wrote the memoir under a pseudonym, Rosamund Campion. And she appeared on TV, she was on radio interviews, and she's now considered one of the pioneers of um, cancer activism. And she lived another 26 years after that. So... In closing, I'd like to say again that there are many, many other women that really had dynamic and challenging careers in the industry, and they had very fulfilling lives after the pulps. But with the time constraints of this presentation, of course, obviously I could not include them, but I'd like to mention three others. Celie Goldsmith Lawley, who edited Amazing Stories and Fantastic around 1958. Beatrice, here's another last name, Mahaffey. Mahaffey, thank you, who edited Other Worlds. She was a co-editor of Science Stories, co-editor of Universe Science Fiction, and she helped edit Mystic. And then Sylvia Kleinman Margulies, who um, some of the magazines that she edited were published by the Thrilling Globe, and she published, uh, she used the pseudonym Dorothy Sands. Some of the magazines that she worked on were Thrilling Love, Mike Shane Mystery Magazine, Satellite Science Fiction, Man from Uncle, Girl from Uncle, Zangrain Western, and Short Stories in 1959. So that's it. And I wanted to thank these people for all their help in this presentation. Thank you. Do you have any questions, comments? Hi, Sheila. I, I might have missed it, but did you list Rose Wynn? Yes. Okay. Yeah. She was one I thought about, but I just didn't have time. She was quite, quite prolific and productive, yeah, along with her husband. Yes. Yeah. I can go back to those slides if you want. We might be here all night then. Yes. I'm sorry, who? Ann Bannon. Ann Bannon. Ann Bannon. No, I don't recall that. No. 
Paperback? Okay. Mm-hmm. You had a Carrie Vaughn, the sitting relation of the contemporary novelist of that name? I don't know. I'm sorry. I can go how do you go back on this, Bill? Do you know? All the way back? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, the two the list of the two right um the very beginning. Now as I said, these were just names that I pulled along the way. I couldn't believe it myself either when I saw how many there were. This is the first one. Oh, and there was one more that I found the other day. She was the editor of Sweetheart Stories. And I meant to put her on here, but it was too late. And I can't remember her name now. <laughs> what did I tell you? I don't have a memory anymore. Anybody? Uh, yeah. Babette had two comic books? Oh, no, or was that the... That was Murray Park. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah, Park, excuse me. Um, <laughs> the, um, the thing is, she was a victim of uh, that overcrowd, that, that monstrous overcrowding of romance in 1950. But even more so, what people don't realize was that it was the worst time in the world to put out a romance comic by close-up, or Archie, because um, they expanded their line immensely in 1949, 50, and 51, with about, oh, Betty Veronica, Jughead, yeah. Katie Keene, other titles, they they wanted to expand uh, a lot, and they decided there was a better market for teen humor than for romance. And she actually did a very good job, Park did a good job on those two comic books. They were two of the better books, but um, the company just couldn't publish. Yeah, it was and a lot. It was really yeah. a terrible time for her, so that's an example of the editor who was very competent and did a good job on her romance books, but was in the wrong place at the wrong time for comedy. Sure, yeah, that's understandable. She was probably relieved, actually. I mean, she was doing six piece, six magazines all at one time. Hi, Kurt. Well, about that, when you uh, were talking about Marie Park, you mentioned that she had several titles that she was responsible for, and you said something like she must have had a great support staff. I'm curious about how someone who's editing six magazines would actually manage all that. Would you put one magazine in the bed and then move on to the next one? Would you do it all simultaneously? Do you have any information about that? Well, it's probably, I'm sure it was like an assembly line, and they had it totally scheduled out, obviously, for several weeks at a time, and maybe one person did one tour, and the next person did the next, and moved all it down. All her magazines, all of them, all six, were by monthlies and uh, Columbia didn't publish monthly romance, and Archie didn't publish monthly comics until later, and all of these are bi-monthly. Mm -hmm. And so it's equivalent, not putting her down at all, but all of these are the equivalent of working on two or three magazines a month. Mm -hmm. So that's how she could do it. Yeah, that's yeah, There were many other editors, um, male and female, who worked on a number of monthly magazines for other co uh, companies that actually had a much higher workload. Yeah, I'm sure they did. Whoops. Anybody else? No. Henry? Well, it's just a very small data point, but uh, Celine uh, Lolly, she married Edward Forges and helped her husband research the Edwards Burroughs files for three solid years to produce the 
Yeah. Very. Yeah. Yeah. Very well respected. Okay. Thank you. You've been listening to a Pulp Event podcast brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines for over 25 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Also, look for the PulpNet on Facebook and on Twitter. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. The Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2021.